0: Hey everyone, this is Josh McPherson, lead pastor of Grace City Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime Christian or just starting to ask questions about Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I hope this message challenges you to think hard and moves you to respond in such a way that results in more freedom and purpose in your life. Enjoy the message. The last uh, kind of trail axiom that we ended with last week was this. The trail so far, garage time improves trail time. Remember that? I was out on the trail with Pastor Gene Helso, and he looks over and he says, hey, uh, you ever put air in your tires? I'm like, air in my what? And he says, your tires are flat. I'm like, oh my goodness, didn't notice. Is that bad for the bike? He said, no, but it's not good for you. (laughs) It makes the uphill journey unnecessarily harder. And I'm like, my goodness sakes, if I could have done something to make this journey easier, why wasn't I doing that? You mean I, I am unnecessarily struggling up this mountain? And he's like, yep. And he says, That's, I always live my life by that. Garage time improves trail time. What's the point he's making? He says for every hour he spends on the trail, he wants to spend at least a couple in the garage, making sure the bike he's going to ride is, is fit to ride. Oil in the chain, putting air in the tire, making sure the brakes are good so it doesn't die on the way down the hill. It's like I made it up and I died on the way down. The point being is that you spend more time in the garage on your bike, the, the experience of riding the trail will, will be better. So too in our life, we often get t- times get so hung up on the trail of life, riding hard, sweating, dripping, crashing, you know, compound fractures, wrapping them up, back on the bike, down the hill, brakes fail, who cares, blow through the corner, hit a tree. And we just think that's the ride when all along, if we had stopped riding the trail of life and stepped into our garage and worked on our life, the trail of life would have been better. And so the design of this series is to encourage all of us to, and give permission to all of us to, to take some time to set aside working on our life, not just in our life. And hopefully the time we spend working on our life will then help increase the effectiveness and the enjoyment and the purpose and meaning we experience in our life. Amen? That's kind of where we're going with this. So having said that, let's get into the garage. Are you ready? You ready? Ready? Here we go. Get into the garage. Here we go. I am going to give you a life plan. I'm going to, well, (laughs) rephrase that. I'm going to teach you how to make a life plan. Okay? You got to make your own life plan. I'm not that much of a control freak. I'm going to make a life plan for you. You know, no, no, no. That's your job. I have no interest in controlling your life. I want to help give you a tool that will help you build a life plan. And this life plan will help you assess where you're currently at, consider your heritage that you've been given, the history that includes choices you make, you've made, and the legacy you want to leave moving here forward with how you live your life. And it's going to help you live with more intentionality the life God's given you. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to help give you a life plan, know how to use it in your life, and then we're going to go into our city groups, and we're we're going to do the homework in our city groups all week long for the next five weeks. So here's four ways to live your life, okay? Four ways that you can choose to live your life from here forward, and you will recognize some of these as, as you're like, oh, I, I, as my mom says often, mm, I resemble that remark. <laughs> you're going to resemble some of these, and some of it is personality based. Some of is, it is a result of sin in your life. Some of you have done well as a result of grace and, and mentoring in your life. But all of us struggle with one of these things from time to time. Reactionary. That's one way you can live your life. Passively dominated by urgencies and pushy people. How many of you recognize that in your life at times? Okay? Raise your hand. The rest of you are liars. Dirty, rotten liars. All of us, in some way, in some measure, go through our life reacting to things, right? Being pulled this way and pulled that way. Circumstance happens. Life happens. Stuff happens. The best of plans get blown up by the worst of circumstances. That, that's life. I get it. But if that becomes a pattern in your life, you're going to be in trouble. If that pattern becomes a regular way that you give yourself permission to do life, you will constantly be dominated by urgencies and pushy people, which is no way to live a life. Amen? It will not lead to the fullness of God's intentions for your life. It will lead to weariness, emptiness, discouragement, despair, and a wasted life. And so if you recognize this, and oftentimes we get into a reactionary season, right? Well, this is just a season right now where like, everything's on fire, so I'm a fireman. And i got to go put out all these fires. And what happens is seasons become a way of life. And so we we want to come against that and go, no, I don't think God's called me to just live in a reactionary sense. That's one way to live your life that we don't uh, 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 want to get trapped in. The second way is conformity. Succumbing to the fear of man, doing what what everyone else is doing. Conformity. Succumbing to the fear of man, doing what everyone else is doing. I call this kind of the flag in the wind approach, right? How am I going to live my life this decade? How am I going to live my life this year? How am I going to live my life today? Well, here's my approach. I get out the flag of my life. I run it up the pole and I see which ways the wind's blowing and then that's the way I go. What's the culture saying today? What are my friends doing today today? What are people I esteem on TV saying I should do? What's the paper saying? What's most popular today? And we run the flag of our life up the flagpole, see which way the cultural winds are blowing or the peer winds are blowing, and that's the way we go. That is a horrific way to live your life. And many of us are doing it unconsciously, and it's leading to a very, a very empty life. The fourth way to live your live your life is is is, is independence. Independently, you're like that's not me. I don't, I I don't I don't succumb to anybody or no one. I don't run my life flag up the flagpole and see which way the wind blows. I am the wind. <laughs> you know that that's, that's your kind of approach. Yeah, you're you're a lot of hot air actually. <laughs> um, independence, non-conforming, rebellion in the name of freedom marked by doing whatever you want to do and ignoring godly authority and wisdom. Is this resembling anybody in the room? Don't raise your hand. We'll pray for you. <laughs> the, 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 this, 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 this is born and bred in, into, into uh, our, 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 uh, our story as a nation, right? Independence. That's a good thing. And then, and, and then it gets a little bent to it, and we, and we, and we fleshed out that independence in our own life, as rebellion in the name of freedom, giving us permission to do whatever we want to do. I don't bend to the wind. I am the wind. I am the captain of my fate, right? Hmm. Makes for great poetry, but lousy life philosophy. Third way to live your life. The fourth way to live your life, intentionality. Intentionality. Reverse engineering your life, building a life then organized around God's values, living every day prayerfully and purposefully. Reverse engineering your life, meaning you go, okay, what do I want at the end? Okay, if I'm going to get that, I've got to reverse engineer my life back to the decisions I'm making today in order to get there. Or, in other words, what mountain do I want to climb, and what's the vector I'm going to set to get there? Because choices are like information that you're putting into the navigational system of your life that's charting the course of of, of your life. So intentional living is reverse engineering your life and then building a life organized around God's values. Because here's the thing. You can have values in your life that you esteem, that you believe are godly and right, and not have a life organized around them in order to live them out. And so here's what I want you to hear is that preferred values or stated values may not be actual life values in your life. So if I were to ask you, what are your values? All of you who have been in church would give me the Sunday school answer. You know, God, family, country, hoorah! <laughs> you know, good job. That doesn't necessarily mean it's how you're living your life. And so when, when I do value exercises, what I first do with... With clients, or what I do with, with people I'm discipling, or what I do with teams I'm leading, or what I do, or I do with myself, is I first assess what am I giving my time and energy and money to? Because, because we always do what we really value. But oftentimes there's a huge difference between what we say we value on paper and what we actually value with our life. And so this exercise is going to be designed to help you first assess, no, what do you really value? No, no, honestly. Like, like, like if someone sat and just watched your life for a week, and then, and then two weeks, and then, God forbid, a month, what would they write down you value? And would it be the same thing that you wrote down in your head you think you value? Stated values aren't actual values. Actual values are actual values. So you reverse engineer your life, where do I want to go, and then you build a life organized around God's values. Here's the thing. Many of you have values that are clearly stated, and you're living them out, but they're not godly. So some have godly values aren't living them out. Some have ungodly values and are living them out. Both of those need to change so that we reassess God's values and then by his grace live them out. Amen? Living every day prayerfully and purposefully. Seeking God's direction, following him there. So, an example in the life of Paul. I want to give you an example in a real life person and someone who wrote a large portion of the New Testament that that we read and learn from as an example of how to live an intentional life. Because when I said earlier, I'm going to give you a tool called a life plan. It's going to help you assess your current reality, build goals, and then plans to get there. Some of you in the room just woke up you're like oh man I'm fired up I eat goals for lunch I am the picture of success. Life plan? I am a walking life plan. I had a life plan for the last 10 years of my life. I have a life plan for the next 50 years of my life. I've been killing it so far this year. i got a life plan for my spouse. i got a life plan for my kids. i got a life plan for my city group. i got a life plan for my pastor, if he'd, if he'd answer my emails. I am a life plan. Right? And what everyone around you wants you to hear is this. You're obnoxious, okay? It's like, it's like, you know, good for you. It's, it's like most of us, that's not our life. But some of you are going to hear this and go, dude, I, I kill life plans. Living on intention is my middle name. Bring it on. There's a great danger that you're facing that I want to make you aware of. And so this is a gentle reminder for those of you who have it together. <laughs> Wasn't that nice of me? I'm turning over new leaves in the new year here. Because I, I had earlier this morning a firm reminder. I thought, no, let's make it gentle. I don't want to yell at them. Now, I'm going to yell at you a lot this year, but just not in this point. So, a gentle reminder for those who have it together. Forgetting what is behind. What do I mean by that? Well, if you got a Bible, I hope you do. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I've got to find it here. It's in the New Testament. It's right toward the end in your Bible, if you're not familiar with it. You can look in the index, and and it'll tell you where to go. Philippians chapter 3. Now, for sake of time, we're just going to read one or two verses, but you should really read the whole chapter. Because it's Paul, who's the apostle, writing to the Philippians, encouraging them to live a life that matters. And here's what you should know about Paul if you're not familiar with him. Paul was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the pastor of pastors, the priest of priests the, the the church guy of church guys, the religious of of the religious before he met Jesus. nobody was religious as Paul. He went to bible school, he had his undergrad in bible, he had a master's in greek and, 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 a, and, a, and a, a doctorate in in, in in church ministry I mean this guy was like like went to church every Sunday he was so zealous that he, that he was he was he made the zealous people like Look JV. I mean, he was just hardcore. And what he does in this chapter is he lists all of his religious accomplishments all the things that you and I on the outside would say make a good person. I went to church every time the doors were open, I fasted, I prayed, I read my Bible, I memorized the Tanakh, I had all the rules down, I I wouldn't eat that food, I wouldn't wear those clothes, I wouldn't hang out with those people. I lived a good, moral, religious, upright life. And in this chapter, what he does is after meeting Jesus, he realizes that all of that was, and I quote, garbage. Because all of the stuff he was doing religiously was in place of and making up for a relationship with God through Christ. And what he says in this text is, doing stuff for God isn't nearly as good as joining in relationship to do things with God through relationship. And so he goes through and he says, if anybody had confidence to have confidence in the flesh... I'm the guy. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And then he gets up to verse 12 and he says as follows Not that I've already obtained all of this or I've already arrived at my goal. Goal? Paul had goals? Yes, he did. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, twice in in two verses there, to win, uh, three verses, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage I'm not giving enough credit for. You need to read the whole thing in its context to catch the essence of what he's saying. But, but here's the point. Paul's saying, everything I did I thought was worthwhile, I'm forgetting and leaving behind me because I realize it's garbage and junk. I'm forgetting all of that and I'm trading it for relationship and intimacy with God through Christ. And here's the danger you'll look at your accomplishments, you'll look at your boxes that have been checked, you'll look at your fit lifestyle, you'll look at your pictures on Instagram or Facebook. You'll look at uh, all the kale in your refrigerator, and you'll be so proud of yourself. You're just a disgusting person, okay? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) That was going downhill. But you'll just start thinking that you just got it all together, right? And what Paul's warning to you here is, be careful that in the accomplishing of good things for God, it doesn't replace relationship with God, and you die apart from him forever, Wouldn't that be a horrible irony? And it happened all the time, and Jesus points it out in the Gospels. That Didn't we heal in your name, and didn't we do things? To, hey, I did a lot for you, God. And God's like, yeah, that's, that's a problem. You thought you were doing it to earn something and buy something that you couldn't earn nor buy. What I gave you in Christ was free, and you tried to pay for it, which means you don't get it. And so I, what I would hate to have happen in this, is in this corporate exercise of thinking through building a life plan for yourself, that, 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 I would, that we would play into the hand of those who are here and lean towards self-righteousness and go, oh, this is awesome. You give me a checklist, I will knock it out and think that somehow you're pleasing God with your good works. And so my caution to you, if that it maybe tends to be you, and And when I say that, please hear me, that that tends to be everyone in the room. I'm not picking on, on, on the fit. That's all of us here who think that we can earn our way by doing something good for God, he'll be proud of us. And Paul says, forgetting all that, I press on to the prize which is relationship and ever deepening communion with Jesus and living from that space. Now, having said that, Here's a gentle reminder for those of us who don't have it all together. Because while some of you heard this, oh, you're giving me a life plan? <laughs> Slow pitch softball, baby. <laughs> Boom. Some of us thought, oh, crap, life plan. I, I, I've swung at that 100 times, haven't hit the ball yet. Why well, even start now? Some of you have thought, okay, um, you know what? I'll just sit here and pretend like I'm taking notes, but I'm not putting a life plan together. Because quite frankly, um, I've tried before and failed. Or, um, Josh, you don't know what I've done. I, I got such a huge ditch or hole of sin and addiction that I have dug for myself. There is no getting out of it. And so rather than participate in trying to build a life that matters, which I know I can't have, I'll just disengage for the next four or five weeks so as not to be disappointed at the end of it. To which I want you to look to that same man, the Apostle Paul, for another example to follow. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says this, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because, and then let's stop there. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I I'm the least of the workers for God. I'm the least of the Christians, and I shouldn't even be allowed to be on the team because, and he's ready to fill in the blank, like many of you do all the time, or I've even done this morning, I don't deserve to, to be so presumptuous as to try to build a life plan, vectoring a course for a life that matters, because, and then you're filling in the blank, Okay. So if that's you, let's just talk that through. I, I don't deserve to be a Christian or to follow Jesus or even to have the absurd assumption that I could make, have a life that matters because I'm a closet porn addict. Because I'm a closet alcoholic. Because I have this addiction that nobody knows or everybody knows that I can't beat. Because I abandoned my family 10 years ago. Because I'm a horrible husband, because I'm a horrible wife, because I'm... What's your because, filling in the blank? Because I'm a failure, because I lack self-discipline, because I've never been good enough, because I've tried before and failed. Because, what is your because? Okay, I just want you to have that in your mind right now. All of you have it. I shouldn't even t- attempt to build a life that matters because, fill in the blank, and then I want you to hear Paul fill in the blank. I'm the least of all the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Your excuse? Paul's excuse. I don't deserve to be called a Christian or build a life that matters because I have a porn addiction which is evil and wrong and devastating, and let's deal with it. I'm not belittling it. Paul, I don't deserve to be called an apostle and live a life that matters because I murdered Christians. Now, anybody in here murdered Christians? Okay, then you got no excuse for you not to be used in the hands of God as a life that matters for the glory of the king in your generation and the generations beyond. And if you have murdered Christians, um, please come talk to us, and we'll, we'll send you to, to Sheriff Burnett, and he'll help you make a life plan for the next 25 to 30 years of your life. <laughs> 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 Whatever excuse you could make, God decided to step on it when he chose this guy to write the Bible. And look what Paul says. It's so amazing. One of my favorite passages. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, oh, and there are a lot of great buts in Paul's letters. And this is one of them. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of the rest of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. What's he saying? I just love that. I murdered Christians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. What's he saying? I just love this. He's saying not only did God's grace reach down into the hole I had dug myself into and pull me out, which is amazing, that grace also had not just a saving, redeeming, restoring effect, It had a fueling, catalyzing, mobilizing effect so that I ran harder than all the rest, not to earn love from God, but because I had been given love from God to live a life that matters. No matter where you've been, what you've done, or where you're currently at, there is grace for you to be pulled out of the pit and put on the path to a life that makes a global impact for Jesus Christ. His grace to me was not without effect. I love that. Like, God's grace won't be wasted to me. No, I see what I got. I see what I was given. And whoo, it's exciting. There is a gigantic difference. In fact, it's a different religion between someone working to earn God's favor and someone responding with work to God's favor. And so my great fear in walking through this life plan exercise with you was that for those of you that teeter on the side of high-performing, high-achieving self-confidence, that you would go, oh, man, this is right down my alley, and you would build a life that doesn't need the grace of God, thus separating yourself from God himself. Or that some of you that would be so defeated... And so full of self-loathing and self-defeat that you would think, you know what, building a life plan and charting a course for a life that matters just isn't my, isn't my shtick. I, I, I can't do it. And what I want you to hear, friends, on the, on the front end of this exercise, in the garage of your life, is that there is grace from God for both that God's grace humbles us in our pride and heals us in our brokenness to empower us on the path of righteousness. So I don't know if you need the humbling grace or the, or the or or the building up grace, but I'm praying God gives it to you in droves even in this moment. And there's a kind of confidence that comes from the grace of God that's different than self-confidence that causes us to live and walk with actually, I believe, more passion and deeper passion than what comes from trying to earn God's favor, because there's a kind of joy that comes with it that sustains us through times of discouragement because we know we're working from a place of love, not for a place of hopefully attaining love one day. So, a gentle reminder to both. And some of you are on this side, some of you are on this side. I happen to live in both worlds almost all the time. I'm just that sophisticated of a sinner. And so if that's you, hopefully that is encouraging. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the first lesson in the garage. Are, are we willing to stay in the garage a little longer? Well, it doesn't matter because you're stuck here. So here we go. Here's what I want you to hear in Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Because some of you are going to build a life plan and then be instantly discouraged because you want to accomplish all of it in the next three nanoseconds. And what I'm saying is, there's grace for the moment and grace for the journey. And God's, if He has started a work in your life, you can take it to the bank, He'll finish it. And that's the rock we're going to stand on. So we're not going to be hurried in this process, we're not going to be haggard in this process. There should be a sense of peace and excitement and joy. And and invigorated faith that accompanies this process. And if you're finding yourself haggard, joyless, beat down, burdened, then, then there's something off in your heart, and you need to go back to the gospel well and draw up a bucket of grace and drink deeply. Because he who began a good work will finish it. You can take a day off, you can sleep through the night, you can take a deep breath, you can enjoy the ride. God's gonna be faithful, God's gonna be faithful. And then we'll be a people who hopefully can say things like, oh man, I'm the least of all who should be on this ride. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Woo! And then we go, okay? So here's where we're going. Setting the stage for your life plan. If you want to live a life that counts, take it to the bank. Expect resistance, okay? If you want to live a life that counts, expect resistance. I just want to set that up up front so there's there's the expectation appropriately on the front end. If you are currently living a life, a blasé, non-purposeful, non-God-glorifying life, it's probably going pretty easy for you in relationship to your interchange with the enemy, it might not be easy in general because living apart from God is hard, but you may not be experiencing active resistance from the devil because you're not a threat. But if you decide in this moment, or you decide to continue on the path that you're on right now, and you, want to, and you, you say, I want to be a godly man of courage that initiates spiritual leadership in my home for the health of my, my wife and my children so that I can say with Joshua, as for me and my house... We're gonna serve the Lord, congratulations. You you now have a new enemy, and his name is the devil. And he's gonna actively resist your efforts to follow Jesus. Because wherever God is moving, Satan is always resisting. And so if God's moving in your life, Satan's gonna be working to resist God in your life, and that's where the war comes. That's why the men right now are going through the book, win your war. Why? Because following Jesus is a declaration of war against the kingdom of darkness. For the 20-some-odd for the, for the parents with kids that we dedicated this morning, if you say, I want to raise a child not just that is fed and clothed and wins scholarships in high school to college, but I want to raise a child, a son, that understands biblical masculinity, or a daughter that understands biblical femininity. I want to, I want to raise a child that understands a Christian worldview, sees the beauty and cohesiveness and wisdom of it, and lives it out in their generation so as to be a part of bringing the kingdom of God to bear on our broken culture, that's the kind of son, that's the kind of daughter, by the grace of God, we're going to raise. If that's your declaration, congratulations, you have an enemy. Because successful kids that win scholarships and go on to make lots of money are of no threat to the enemy. But kids that have a passion for Jesus and want to bring the flourishing and wisdom of God into the culture in which they live, now that's a threat to darkness, and he will make war on you and your family. If you say, I want to take my business and submit it to God's purposes and use it to bring flourishing in our community through the jobs we provide and the services that we render and the, and the resources that are generated and the generosity it allows us to, to, to have, congratulations, you've just declared war. But if your business is just there to make you money and to provide a measure of security for your family and promote your name in the community, that's awesome, great deal. Jump into the economic machine that is American capitalism. I'm all for it. You just won't be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. But if you say, in the job I, I work at or the business I own, it's, it's not my job, it's God's job, it's not my business, it's, it's God's business, then congratulations, you have an enemy. If you want to live a life that counts, expect resistance. That's just the nature of the game. Life principle number one. Very simple, but we got to be reminded. The choices you make will determine the future you live. And this is the beauty of God. We believe in the God who is sovereign over all and in control of all things, working all things toward his intended purposes. Period. We also believe that in the mystery of God's design, he has created a world in which you can make real choices in real time that have real consequences for your life. God gives you the dignity of making real choices, which means every choice you make will have consequences. And this is just what's mind-boggling. Somewhere in the mystery of God's providence and grace, you know, I heard someone say uh, uh, recently, my goodness, how did you raise a kid like that? And, and, and they responded, you don't raise a kid like that. The Spirit of God is gracious and kind. That's how we answer that question. And yet they have designed their life for 20 years to make decisions in such a way as to guide that child toward the heart of God. You see the tension the believer walks in? Think how many decisions you made this morning. Now think about how many decisions you made this last week. Now think about how many decisions you made in the, in the last year or the last decade. It's circuit blowing, right? All those decisions accumulated in, in, in you arriving at where you're at right now. Now think of how many decisions you've got to make the rest of the day. Tomorrow, next week, this year, ten, in the next 10 years. You and I will make a mind-numbing amount of decisions. And every decision is charting the course of our life. And if there have not been pre-entered directives in the navigational system of our decision-making protocols, we will consciously or unconsciously make decisions that take us away from living out the fullness of God's intentions for our lives. So we've got to realize that none of us here are victims of circumstances. We are the result of the choices we make. But Josh, I can't help that I was XYZ. I get that. You can't control the circumstances of your life outside your control, but you do determine how you respond to them, which explains why some people rise up out of difficult circumstances and some people don't. Second life principle. Oh, excuse me. Uh, uh, to follow up with that, just this is super helpful. None of us plan to fail at life, but few of us plan not to fail at life. Or not way to say it, none of us plan to fail at life, but a few of us plan to succeed at life. Here's what I mean by that. None of us in the room, at least I hope not, woke up this morning thinking, um, I hope I can offend like five people today. Right? I mean, I've already offended more than that, but it wasn't my intention. In, in my defense, I didn't wake up with that intention. No one, no one says to themselves, you know what, I think I'd like to gain five pounds every year for the next 20 years and die of diabetes. No one says that, right? No one says, here's the deal. I'd like to overcommit myself so much and be buried under so many responsibilities that I burn myself out, blow my marriage up, and in five years, am a raging alcoholic. Like nobody wakes up saying that. But oftentimes we get there because Elijah said, so no one like wakes up and says, I want to to be a jerk and blow my marriage up and have no friends and die lonely under a, a, a mound of debt. Like like no one says, I, w- I want to swipe the card and, and build up credit card debt and like be imprisoned to bills the rest of my life. We rarely make plans to fail, but when we fail to make plans, we, we end up failing. And so that's part of what this life plan is designed to help us with. Life principle number two, most of life is made up of the mundane. Success happens when you learn to do the mundane things really well for a long period of time this is making a case for the ordinary. Now, if you're like me, you want to live for the extraordinary moments, okay? And this is so funny. This came to me while preaching first service. It came real time. I heard it for the first time. They heard it. So you're going to hear it for the second time as I process this out. But it struck me as so funny as I was talking is, is I, am, I, 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 am, I can be really hard on the Seahawks. You know that, right? It's like, I love the Seahawks, but it's like, you know, my whole philosophy is, well, I don't know. Let's score some points in the first half, right? That's my whole thing, right? It's like, Good Lord, you know, you know, I mean, I'm not a professional play caller, but, oh, I don't know. Let's let Russell throw it before the fourth quarter, you know. It's like, that's my whole thing. Like, why are we putting ourselves in a position where Russell's got to score 900 points in the last two minutes with a hurry-up offense? It's like, it's stressful to be a fan, you know. I mean, can I get an amen? It's just, it's just like, this is stressful. We got the best quarterback in the league. Let him play, you know. And so that's, that's how I think about these things. And then it struck me in first service, I'm the Seahawks. I was like, that's crazy. Because oftentimes my lack of discipline or my, or my overcommitment or, or my, the crazy pace of my life, things get put to where I got to throw the Hail Mary and I got to get three of them in the bag with a two-minute offense run, you know, no huddle deal or, 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 or I'm going to lose the game. And because of, of my personality and gifting, oftentimes I win a few of the games. And then that excuses all of the poor decisions that I forgot that I did in the first three quarters of the game, and I give myself permission to make all those same poor decisions the next game I play, whenever else around me is going, Josh, score some points in the first half of your life. Now this is making a lot of sense for me. I realize it probably made no sense for you at all, So, but very helpful for me, very cathartic, thanks for listening. So, <laughs> what's the point? Start making better decisions in the small mundane things of life, and you won't have to throw Hail Marys at the end of the game in order to win because it wears your wife out. Yeah, that was was probably a little personal, a little too much information there for you. uh, But hey, group therapy works sometimes. So one of my resolves is, I mean, I I wrote this down this this, uh, last week, and it rocked my world. And you're going to just think I'm an idiot, which you probably think that already, so that's fine. I wrote down, I wrote down, and and the reason it's dumb is because it was mind blowing to me. I wrote down, I am, word for word, a better leader when I get sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Because I got eight hours of sleep one night this week, and I woke up and actually felt like being a Christian for the first time in a year. I was like, this is amazing! I got, and I'm like, this is all, is this how everyone feels every day? Like, wow, I slept for eight hours. That was, woo! I mean, I was not fun to live with that day, probably. And so it's like, it's like I wrote that down as a revolutionary epiphany, people, just to make sure you don't put me on two-eyed pedestals while I'm sharing these things. And I thought, my gosh, I've said that a thousand times from the pulpit. But my, your life gets crazy, and you got to remind yourself of the simple things, right? We oftentimes think that, well, our life will make a big splash if we do the big deal, when most oftentimes it's doing the mundane things over a season of time that leads to a life that actually makes a difference. Which means the life of wisdom is a life of healthy patterns, okay? The life of wisdom is the life lived of healthy patterns, and this is what I mean. If you set a goal of losing, you know, 15 pounds, okay, you may lose those 15 pounds and win in the accomplishment of your goal, but not win in keeping the pounds up because three months later you got them back and you're back in the same hole. Nothing's, nothing's gained. Nothing's moved forward. You may set a healthy pattern of, 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 of eating a different way, and only lose 10 pounds, not 15 pounds, but now you're winning the long game because you have established a new pattern of living, not just meeting a short-term, short-sighted goal. Does that make sense? This is so funny to me. I thought of this in first service as well. I'm hearing lots for the first time as as you are this morning, this is great. I I thought this is a hilarious example of my grandpa, and you might be watching online, and so, sorry grandpa, but this is so funny. My grandpa, throughout his life, he would go on diets, okay? And I would come into the house and be, hey, Grandpa, can I fix your sandwich? Nope, nope, that's okay, I'm on a diet. Oh, what are you eating? I'm not. And his idea of dieting was I need to lose 10 pounds so he would starve himself for days, okay? And he would just not eat for days and days and days. And lo and behold, he'd lose 5 or 10 pounds. And then he'd celebrate with a burger, a Coke, and a milkshake. You know, and just right back on the train. You know what I mean? Now I'm not criticizing my grandpa because he's 93 and healthier than I am. Okay, so it's like he, he might have found something there. I mean, he, but he was he was born of the old school. You know, almost 100 years ago in a Mira Cooley heartline where you know they ate beef and they milked cows and they had pie for every meal. And he they didn't they didn't even know that kale existed. Glory be to God. You know. So he's not of this school that if you have a sucking chest wound, drip some o- oil on it or rub some kale on it, you know? He's like, he's like, hey, man, I mean, like, go to the doctor for a gunshot and, like, eat steak and pie for dinner. You know, like, that's, that's what we do. Which was, I, I'm, I'm in that school with him. But the idea that you could, you know, be healthy by just starving yourself, not like, you know, responsible, disciplined, intermittent fasting, like starving his body, we'd all just kind of chuckle. Grandpa's on a diet again, you know, and, and here he goes. And oftentimes, that's what you and I do with our life. Like, well, i, got, I got the—I got to read the entire Bible through four times by Tuesday. And I'm going to give it my best shot, and if I do it, woo! and then never read the Bible again. Or you could read one chapter a day, and in the next 10 years, have read through the Bible three times with a steady drip of wisdom being dripped into your life every day. Which would be better? Well, which do you think? right so, so, a life of wisdom is a life of healthy patterns, which the life plan we 're going to walk through together is designed to give you. so five categories of life that, that you need to win in in order to experience happiness, spiritual, relational, physical, vocational financial here 's what I mean we 're going to take one week per category, and we 're going to do two things one we 're going to talk about general biblical principles around how to thrive in that area of your life, and then best life hacks or best practices in order to how to make sure that area thrives, and then we're gonna, you'll have assignments to, to, to work out in your city groups to build a life that's organized around that goal. So how many of you, feel oftentimes dry, discouraged, and disconnected from God and wish you had a connected, vibrant, abiding, ongoing relationship with the Father. And I'm here to tell you, it is absolutely possible. The Father loves you, is for you, is with you. And if you feel disconnected, it's not because God forgot your phone number, it's because you've stopped calling. And so how many of us would love to go into this year establishing patterns in our life that ensure we stay connected to the vine, vitally attached to the source of life so that our faith and our spiritual journey is marked by vitality and health and life and victory. If anyone is on board with that, I'm saying it's available by the grace of God as you organize your life around practices, mundane as they may be in your life, that brings that about. Wouldn't that be amazing? Amazing. How about relational? All of life is relational. All of it. And I believe one of the gifts that the church should be bringing to the culture is a level of relational intelligence found nowhere else. Because we were made by God out of the relational institution of the Trinity. We were created out of relationship, by relationship, for relationship. And that's where Satan attacks. And the fall broke relationship with the Father and with each other. And I believe one of the reasons our culture is so wildly rejecting marriage right now is there are far too many pictures of good ones as God intended them. And one of the ways that we can work against the brokenness of our culture is to present lives that live out the beauty of God's intentions for relationships by building healthy ones ourselves. Learning to forgive learning to extend grace, learning to not harbor bitterness, learning to be long suffering, learning how to be life giving in how we relate, not life taking in how we we, we relate in our words and our actions. And when we walk in the power of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit comes out, our relationships will thrive. When we walk in the flesh and live from a self-centered posture of taking, not giving, our relationships will suffer. There's plenty of examples of relationships suffering in our world, far too examples of relationships thriving in our world, which is why the church is here, I believe. And there, there should not be in our church just one or two, oh, look, they made it 65 years. They're a unicorn. At least somebody did it. No, that should be the, the rule, not the exception at Grace City Church. Sharon and I, if she doesn't die of a heart attack or me a lack of sleep, will be married 65 years or longer. I'm, I'm stating right now the statement of faith, period. That's where we're going. Divorce isn't an option separation isn't on the table, those words never leave our lips, those discussions are never had, we will, will, will finish strong together to the glory of God, period. You, you, can, you can thank her for that, yeah. Says so a lot more about sharing than it does for me, I'll tell you that right now, but here's the deal. What if a church full of people said, that's my declaration too? What if we could say these kids we're raising? That's what we're raising them toward. You send out marriages, strong, vibrant in this community, that brings flourishing and and blessing that we couldn't begin to calculate. Physical, the reality of it is God's made us spiritual beings in a physical body. It's foolish to address the spiritual, not the physical, because God made us in a world where both exist. God's a physical, tangible God. Heaven will not be an ethereal experience. Heaven will will be beautifully tangible and objective as God restores this world we live in to all of its intended purposes he had in creation. And so we we're going we're gonna to address the physical, right? I lead better when I sleep, you know? Four, vocational. I believe God gave us work as a gift, not a curse. But the work we, that we do is under the effects of the curse. What does it look like to thrive in that? And what I love about Grace City Church is how many men and women do so many different things well. I mean, the gifting and, and creativity and work ethic of our church blows my mind. There are men and women in this church that do things that are so far beyond my ability to understand how do they do that. That is an amazing gift they have. That is an amazing, like, how, I mean, I'm just, I'm just regularly stunned by the humanity of the people who call Grace City Church home. And what I have a passion for is helping you see how what you love to do or what you're currently doing, love it or not, as a job can become a calling under the banner of the glory of God that you find great joy in doing because God gave us work as a gift not a curse. And then lastly financial. We live in a world where money matters and that's by God's design. Money is not evil. The love of money leads to evil. The stewardship of money leads to freedom and blessing. Allah building home. Which, by the way, we're 14 weeks from being inside of. Woo! (laughs) Thought I'd throw that out there for you. And our heart is that you would live in such a way with the money God's entrusted you with that it would lead you to a life of freedom, not bondage, so you could experience the blessing that money can be when brought under the submission of God's rule. So that's where we're going to go, and here's what we're going to do. Every Sunday, someone... You know, probably different. We'll, you know, I'm going to do some of these. I'm going to bring in some guys I think that are even better at this than me in some of these areas and then we're, they're going to teach biblical principles and then best practices and give you a cheat sheet and then you'll take that back to your life and go to your city group or with your, your family if you're not in one and you'll work on building a life plan I'm going to give you in order to, here's the questions you ask, here's, here's the statements you're going to write, here's the values you're going to assess so that you can begin building a life plan and charting a course to live a life that matters in these areas of life. Because if you ignore any one of these five areas, your life will suffer significantly. So here's how a life plan can help. If you're like, eh, I don't want to do this. This is so annoying. I'll just pretend I'm not here for the next five weeks. And hopefully we get back to like preaching to the Bible. That's so less, much less stressful. When I don't have to do anything with what he said. <laughs> gotcha, right? <laughs> A life plan clarifies what's most important, meaning it gives you a filter to say no. Most of us are buried not because we said no to the wrong things, but because we said yes to the wrong things. And one of the keys to living a life that matters is having a set of values and vision that's so clear, it gives you a grid through which you can determine what to say yes and no to, even when good opportunities come along. And this has gotten harder and harder and harder for me personally, as we've grown as a church. And I'm telling you, if I'm not getting this right, it's not going to be good for me. And so too in your life as well. You're going to have things you can do and commit to and give your time to, all of which are good, none of which are evil or sinful or bad. But you can't say yes to everything because you're a finite human being with finite limitations in your mind, body, spirit, and emotions. And if you don't learn to say no, quite frankly, your yes won't mean anything. And this is, we, have, we constantly have to reevaluate this, right? Because life is dynamic and we got it figured out for six months and then we slip and we let it go and, and, and we crash and burn. So a life plan helps you clarify what's most important so you can know what to say no to. It can help you address current realities because many of you, like me, think we're doing better than we are and we live a self-deceived life or we're doing worse than we are and we're not aware of all of God's grace in our life. And An honest assessment can help you both get a grip on where you're failing and thought you were succeeding and get a grip on where God's been gracious and you didn't even see it. And here's what I mean. It will help you assess your current realities because maybe like myself, some of you have a set of stated values that you put on the, on the table. Like, if I ask you, what, should, what, what are your values? And if you've been in church for any major time, you can give me the Sunday answers. God, family, country. Hoorah. <laughs> Hoorah. But in reality, the life you're living is quite different from those values. So you put the right answers on paper, but I'm saying if someone were to watch your life. Did I already say this in the service? I feel like I'm repeating myself. You preach multiple services, it's hard to remember. If someone was to watch your life and see how you actually live, would it line up with what you actually say you believe? It helps you address current realities. It helps you envision a better future. Some of you are so discouraged by where you're at, you can't even begin to see where God could potentially take you. And it's going to activate a, a holy, sanctified imagination into a preferred future God could give you if you walked with him. I'm telling you, no matter where you're at in life, there is a better future in front of you than behind you. That by faith, your life to date doesn't have to be your legacy. That by faith, you can change the the heritage you were given and and, and the history that you've lived to date to leave a different kind of legacy with, with the choices that you make. Having a life plan helps you accomplish what matters most helps you ensure you don't have regrets i want to help you live a life that minimizes your regrets how many of you want to live a life full of regrets not me i want to die happy and running hot clear conscience full heart walking in the light take me home lord left it on the field all good to go I don't want to ask for more time. Wish I'd done it differently. Wish I could go back. I wish I would have spent more time with my son. Oh, I wish I would have read my Bible more. I wish I would have. I, none of that for me. None of that for me. I'm in mean, to live a life with no regrets, which means I need to have a life plan that reflects the values of God and then organize my life in a way to live it out. So here's why we don't meet our goals. Are you ready? We don't see progress fast enough. How many of you are in that camp? Oh, man, that's me. We set result goals rather than lifestyle goals. We get overwhelmed with our goals. So what I want to do is I want to help us walk through this process in a way that's manageable and reasonable so that we don't spend a week writing, change the world goals we could never hope to live up to and then abandon them two months after trying them. I I want to help us think through building life, a life plan that's sustainable for the long haul. So here's your garage time. Week one, here's your your job. Assess where you're currently at. And if you... Get Adam's emails on Mondays and my Grace City News on Fridays. You will receive this tomorrow in your email. If you don't, you can go on our app or our website and sign up to receive that. And I will send you this tomorrow. It's an exercise that has questions in it. It's, it, 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 it's, it's this material that will help you, give you tools and questions to assess your life where you're currently at. If you take this out right here, you got a hand of this when you walked in, Right? There's the six principles that were the axioms we're keeping in it before us as we go on the journey. On the back is the beginning of this process. You got that in your hands? Okay? And there's multiple areas here and the first category is how I'm doing. You're going to rate that 1 to 10. 1 is you're the devil and 10 is you're Jesus, okay? My guess is you're somewhere in between. <laughs> you know, so if it's like, you know, like like a, a marriage, you know, my marriage. My marriage right now is is like a 9, okay? I only say nine because neither of us are Jesus, okay? I'm saying nine, though, because, you know, I'm like typically, I go through life at about a three. My wife's a 14, so she pulls us up to a nine, okay? My, my, life's a, my marriage is a nine. Now, over here in this category, what I want to prioritize, you're going to write, you're going you're to order in priority what you want to focus on in your life plan. So if your marriage is a nine, I'm not going to prioritize working on my marriage over here. I'm not going to do that. That came out wrong. I love you, honey. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep it a nine, okay? But, but, like right now, like, you know, maybe my recreations or hobbies or my health is a two. Well, I'm going to prioritize focusing on that because I need to work on that. Does that make sense? So, so you kind of grade yourself how you're doing and then prioritize what you're going to focus on. And I'll give you questions in the email tomorrow if you'd like that will help you kind of assess that. And then at our city groups on Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever you meet, we're going to do that assessment in our group. And, and then you don't have to share if you don't want to, but we're, we're going we're gonna to make time in our city group to do these assignments so you don't have homework to show up with. You can just show up and do it. It's going to be kind of cool. So there's the assessment. Why making the plans is a big deal. I'll end with this. Here's why it's a big deal. Look at Acts 19. Paul says, After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Quote, After I had been there, he said, I planned to visit Rome also. See this word? Plan. Paul the Apostle made plans to live a life that matters and made an impact for Jesus Christ. Okay? Question Did Paul make it to Rome? Anybody know? He did? He did it. He did? He did make it to Rome. Did he make it to Rome how he planned? No. He ended up in Rome because he was arrested back here and sent there in chains and imprisoned. So Paul made plans because he wanted his life to matter, and then life happened and interrupted those plans. Does that mean Paul should have not made plans? Here's what's crazy. You make plans, why? Because making plans changes the world. Paul made God-centered, God-glorifying, God-purposed plans, and then Satan tried to interrupt those plans. Oh, you want to go to Rome? I'll get you there in prison, and then what happens? What did he do, do you remember? He wrote a letter to the Romans that we call Romans. Romans. He had a plan. Satan interrupted it. He stayed on course and wrote what is arguably by secular scholars one of the greatest literary works in antiquity. Just because you don't accomplish your plans doesn't mean they're not worth making, people. God is sovereign. He's called us to make choices that matter. We make God-glorifying plans and then let the chips fall to the glory of God. So... Making plans changes the world. I end with a story, Terry, Nor- Terry, Norris, and Joe. Terry- Is Norris Williams here today? Is he gone out of town? Yeah. Terry Fike and Norris Williams are, are dear friends of mine. Terry has been a mentor to me for over, almost 20 years. And Terry and Norris, if you know them, are both men of purpose and passion. They know who they are. They know why they're here. They know where they're going, and they have a plan to get there. They're some of the most intentional men I know. They have vision statements for their life. They have clearly articulated values and they regularly revisit those values to assure those values match their life. And Terry Fike and Norris Williams were at a boys' ranch 20 years ago, if not more. Actually, it would be closer to 25 years ago. And they were there for, I want to say, eight to 10 years. And and they were there because they were making plans to spend their life in a way that mattered. And they were in this little-known Boy's Ranch off the pass up around Natchez area over by Yakima and they were there just off to the side out in the trees and in the woods doing the mundane things with purpose because they had a plan for their life that they were going to live out to the glory of God and one day a young man by the name of Joe showed up at the Boy's Ranch and Joe showed up very angry Joe came from a broken family, mom and dad, in and out, divorce, a remarriage. And in the remarriage, the, the remarriage brought in new kids to the picture and when those new kids came along, Joe kind of got set to the side and ignored. And there's a growing sense of need in Joe's life for his dad and for his mom for attention and they're not getting it. One summer they ship him off to summer camp and when he comes back home, he discovers that his family has moved. They haven't told him where they've gone. He doesn't know where they've went. Like, where's my family? I've heard Terry tell this story 20 times. I asked him to tell it to a group of people yesterday, and I still marvel at it every time. Send him to summer camp. He's gone. They move, comes back alone. State ships one of the boys rants, he shows up angry, you think? And Joe had no fear of anything or anyone, and in his rage and his anger, he would he could run through a brick wall. And Terry Norris, because they knew who they were, why they were here, and where they were going and had a plan to get there, began doing, making very mundane and ordinary and unseen and non-sexy investments in the life of this kid. No blogs written about them. No, no book deals coming their way. No movies made about them. Just being two men that know what they're about in the place God's called them to, living out their plan they intentionally built to live a life that mattered. And they began investing in Joe's life and loving him. And they had even some physical altercations with him. And if you know Norris, you realize how foolish Joe was. (laughs) Because Norris is a mountain, you know? And Joe was about this big. And one day they were in the kitchen or in the bathroom, and, and Terry, as a carpenter, kind of a master carpenter, would use the trades to to give these boys life experiences because one of Terry's values and stated life purposes is to use the trades as a means to introduce young men to noble manhood. And so he's using this trade, but he's using it as a means to make an investment in this young man's life. And on their knees in the bathroom, troweling some grout into tile, Terry leads Joe to Jesus. And Joe gives his life to the Lord and Terry and Norris continue mentoring him and pretty soon he ages out of the system and they don't see him for 20 years. Two men, knowing what they're about, knowing why they're about it, doing the mundane stuff in life like tiling a bathroom and talking to a young man about Jesus. Fast forward 20 years. Joe gets married, loves a woman, Goes in the Marine Corps, it's 20 year combat marine experience, leaves the Marine Corps a combat veteran, starts coaching high school as an assistant coach, high school football at a high school on the west side of the state. And one night after a game, Joe Kennedy thought to himself, I'm gonna go out to the fifty yard line after the game and just thank the Lord for this game. Walked out to the center of the field, knelt in the 50-yard line, bowed his head 30, 60 seconds, stood up, went back to the sideline, no big deal. The next week, he does the same thing. One of the players said, hey, coach, what, what are you doing? Nothing, just thanking the Lord for the game. Think I could go out with you? Sure. (laughs) Kids. Other coaches. Pretty soon players from the other side are coming out. Pretty soon coaches from the other side are coming out. Pretty soon parents are coming out of the stands. And over the course of this season, there becomes dozens and dozens and dozens of people who follow Coach Kennedy out to, to... the 50-yard line after the game, and he'd grab a helmet from one side and a helmet from the other, and he'd hold them up in the circle, and he'd say, Father, thank you for good battle today. Thank you for healthy boys that can hit hard. Thank you for free country to play games and green grass and blue sky to play on and play under. Be with these young men, Lord. Bless their endeavors. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. See you, boys. That's Joe Kennedy. Pretty soon, someone inside the school system hears what's going on, goes to the principal and says, hey, do you know what one of your assistant coaches is doing on a football game on Friday night? No idea. He's praying with students on the field. No. Yeah. I feel threatened. I'm offended. That needs to stop right now. Well, I'm on it. Boop. Joe gets called into the principal's office. He says, you do that again, I'll fire you. We're gonna get sued, something bad's gonna happen, your liability, you do that again, I'm gonna fire you. Now, Joe Kennedy has a dilemma on his hands. He's not angry anymore because of a father wound. He's loving Jesus, leading his home, living a godly life, investing in the lives of young men like these two men invested in his life when no one else would. And he's got a decision to make. Do I cave to the pressure so that I violate my values in order to save my hide, and all the boys see that? Or do I stand for my values at maybe great cost to myself to show the boys that if you know what you value, sacrifices for it are worthwhile? Word begins to spread, murmuring, what's Joe going to do? Is he going to pray, not going to pray, save his job, sacrifice a job, sue the school, fight the school, what's going to happen? Word gets out. That Friday night, hundreds and thousands of people at the game that normally would not have cared. News outlets, it's a buzz. And Terry fight got word on Friday morning that that was going down. He grabs Nancy. They get in the car. They drive over the mountains. He hasn't seen Joe in 20 years. At the end of the game... With everyone's breath held, Joe walks out to the 50-yard line, kneels, prays, stands up, and the circus starts. Coach Kennedy, Coach Kennedy, you know, are you going to sue the school? What are your thoughts? And, and, and news clamoring, and cameras in his face, and parents, and he, he's like, it's not a big deal, just, just doing my thing, like, you know, and, and this, whatever. And in the chaos, Terry, tile-grouting Terry, Mundane, non sexy, investing in the boys' lives when no one else was there. Terry works his way through the crowd, touches him on the shoulder. Joe looks, sees Terry, who he hasn't seen in over 20 years. He breaks, collapses into Terry's arms, sobbing on his shoulder. The newspaper going, Who's this guy? Who's this guy? Who's this? Who's this? They're weeping together in their embrace. Terry looks him in the eyes. There's only Terry Fike can look you in the eye. And he fades back into the crowd, and they never exchange a word. Joe Kennedy was fired that day, lost his job. He contacted Terry Fike a, a, a few days later, and he said, Hey, just so you know, this is your fault. You had a plan with your life that led you to make investments in boys that nobody else cared about in the mundane moments of life when nobody else was looking that changed the course of my life. And I just wanted to say thank you. Now, do you know where Joe Kennedy was this week? Joe Kennedy was in the Oval Office with President Trump Signing into the legislation, prayer in schools. Oh, man. Don't ever underestimate you establishing a pattern in the mundane areas of life that result from a plan that you've made to make the small choices in the ordinary moments to live a life that matters for the sake of Jesus. Because there are a thousand more Joe Kennedys out there in your city group, in your family, in your town, on your team, in your business that God wants you to love if you just make a plan to live in such a way as to love them. So Father, I'm praying that you go with these dear precious people that you would encourage them and strengthen them and invigorate them and fill them with your grace so that we could be a people who understand the times and made a plan to live our life accordingly, to be a blessing to our community and to, bring it, and to be a joy to the heart of God. I pray for our city group conversations, for the conversations that will happen between fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and husbands and wives and friends and DNA groups, that they would be God-glorifying conversations, that you would give us a a, a sanctified imagination and awake us up to a preferred future that we could live into by your grace and with your strength. We ask all these things, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this message today. If you did, there's a couple things I'd love for you to do. First, like and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. That way, the most recent message from Grace City will always be waiting for you at the top of your feed. Secondly, if this ministry has encouraged you and you'd like to help us reach more folks, you can do so by giving a gift to our ministry so we can continue making these resources available for free. Just go to gracecitychurch.com give. Thanks for listening. God bless.